Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome to what we hope is one of the premier podcasts out there having to do with pharmacotherapy and medicine. And we really appreciate, you know, all listeners, but certainly those uh, healthcare provi- providers, both, both providers and pharmacists who are seeing patients right at the bedside and clinic and in the pharmacy. And hopefully the information you get here is helpful to, to do your job a little bit better and a little bit easier because we try to give you guys the latest studies, the latest guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if this is the first time listening to us, thank you. And if you're a longtime listener, uh, thanks again for listening to us. Today, we are going to be talking about insomnia and to quote the band Faithless and their classic 90s house song, I Can't Got No Sleep, is what that guy used to say in, in that song. Insomnia is very common. And I think certainly since COVID has hit, I know my insomnia has gotten way worse. And most, a lot of friends I have, they have a lot of bad insomnia associated with it. And so this is something that, that I think that everybody sees or deals with on a, on a very regular basis. Uh, there is an actual definition for this. It's a predominant complaint of dissatisfaction with sleep quantity or quality with at least three months of difficulty in initiating or maintaining sleep that's either frequent, frequent characterized by frequent awakenings or just problems returning to sleep after awakenings, which lead to daytime consequences such as sleepiness and hyperactivity. Old studies that suggest that the prevalence of insomnia in Western populations is incredibly common, um, somewhere up to 20%. And, I, and I'm sure that number has, has definitely risen since the pandemic has hit. And unfortunately, is a chronic disease usually with persisting symptoms up to 60% of people after five years of a formal diagnosis. And of course, there are tons of actual consequences that have been studied associated with insomnia, including decreased productivity, increased absenteeism, uh, use of healthcare, uh, accidents, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then retrospective studies have actually also associated insomnia with a wealth of other bad things. Um, some you would expect like mental health disorders, such as this depression and anxiety, uh, alcohol dependence, drug dependence, stuff like that, but also an increased risk of hypertension, coronary disease, worse quality of life, and yes, increased mortality. Uh, several studies have, uh, have, have found an association with people who, who, ha- who get less than six hours of sleep a night with increased uh, mortality. And it's one of the, one of the things why, you know, people who work night shifts, for example, they often don't have very good sleep or they often get, they get by on four to five hours of sleep a night. And uh, studies have suggested they often have an increased mortality that you can, you know, take out of like car accidents and stuff like that, that's just associated with it. So, you know, sleep is just critically important, of course. And, and, and so you'll see it a lot and you might suffer from it yourself. General management, of course, includes treating comorbid medical and psychiatric conditions. Probably one of the big things that I think all of us really need to get better at is, is improving sleep hygiene. Um, I, I suspect most of the people who are listening to my voice are looking at their computer or looking at their phone before they go to bed. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Um, you, need to, you need to get away from that blue light that suppresses the release of melatonin in your brain and increases the release of serotonin and, and norepinephrine, which, you know, your body's like light, get up, start working. And it's like, no, it's time to go to bed. So, you know, stuff like that, stuff like watching a lot of TV 
PD in bed, you know, and all the things that I think we've all heard about stress uh, uh, with sleep hygiene is very, very important that probably most of us don't do. Um, also, cognitive behavioral inventions have been shown to be uh, very beneficial. But of course, in the, in, in the end, a lot of patients turn to medications and specific treatments. Now, as, as most of you know, that's a problem because, uh, you know, millions of patients worldwide take daily medications to help them with sleep. But there's almost no studies out there with any therapy, both either over-the-counter or, or prescription for uh, insomnia that has been studied for more than, say, four to 12 weeks. That we have people who've been taking, you know, uh, you know, Ambien every night for, for five years or, you know, Ativan every night or melatonin every night or, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. So the problem is, is that we really don't have a lot of comparative data suggesting which of the, of the very many medications that have been recommended for insomnia are efficacious in the long term, if there's any even data on that, uh, if they're safe in the long term, if, they're to if there's good tolerability in the long term, and certainly almost nothing on comparative efficacy. Is melatonin better or worse than some other ther therapy, for example? So this month in The Lancet, um, a really good systematic review and meta-analysis, actually probably one of the best I've read in recent years, uh, was, was done. I was commenting a little bit about how, how these guys really went above and beyond, in my opinion, to really get all the data they could to put into their meta-analysis. But uh, again, I encourage you, we'll have, a, we'll have a link to the to the study in our show notes. It's actually uh, uh, for free, as I, if I remember right. So you can just, you don't even have to like be a member of the Lancet to, to take a look at it. So I encourage you to do that. But a, a pretty well a systematic review and network meta-analysis on the pharmacologic treatments of insomnia. And and they did the study pretty much like most meta-analyses. They did a gigantic super lit search where they looked at the Cochrane Register, Medline, PubMed, PubMed, Embase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, up till November 21st, 2021 from their beginnings. They searched WHO International Clinical Trials Registry Platform, clinicaltrials.gov, and other websites to regulatory agencies looking for other studies they may have missed then. They did not restrict uh, for language, so that's pretty impressive. And here's the most impressive thing. They actually contacted investigators and relevant trial authors to ask them questions and ask them to supplement incomplete reports or, or have uh, answer questions about the, the uh, studies they had, or if they were aware of any other unpublished studies that may have negative results uh, that never that never saw the light of day, basically. Something you don't see in a lot of network meta-analyses or meta-analyses in general is, is, is that level of doggedness of, of following up to make sure that you can get every last stitch of, of information or data for review. So I thought that was pretty well done. They focused on randomized control trials. Now, again, with meta-analyses, you know, that's that's usually what you want to do, right? Because RCTs have have the highest level of evidence. And it's and definitely with meta-analyses, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you have terrible studies going into the meta-analysis, you're going to get terrible results of the meta-analysis. That's, I think, a good thing. But people who read a lot of meta-analyses will often say, yeah, but, you know, you can... Uh, kind of man, uh, manipulate things statistically so that even good retrospective studies can play a big role here, but they did not do that. Uh, for this network analysis, they only consider double-blind RCTs, usually monotherapy uh, against placebo, uh, very occasionally uh, 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 dual therapy, but again, that was very rare. And they found, uh, again, they wanted to look at all studies, both short-term and long-term. They didn't include drugs that nobody uses anymore, like chloral hydrate or any of the barbiturate derivatives, uh, you know, which again, for those those of you not way into medical history, remember that that it really was only in the 1960s or so that it wasn't that uncommon to see people on barbiturates every day for sleep. Um, the common one was Milltown, going down to Milltown, they used to say. A large segment of middle America was was basically on barbiturates for helping them sleep, which I'm sure that was a lot of fun when they tried to get them off of that. So they didn't include any of that stuff, though. They tried to include study drugs that were approved by either the FDA, the British National Formulary, the European Medicines Agency, or some other 
national regulatory organization. And then we looked at drugs, uh, studies where drugs were used in the dose that is commonly used, basically. They had a pretty broad outcome. Their primary outcome was efficacy, which they measured as patient-related quality of sleep or satisfaction with the sleep index. Now, they point out in the study that, of course, with all these different drugs and all these different studies, there were different outcome measures. Some did things as, as simple as a 1 to 10 scale about how satisfied you are with your sleep, but there are more, more validated and more statistically rigorous types of scales they really tried to focus on. They also looked at all-cause discontinuation, so the proportion of patients who stop treatment for any reason as well as treatment discontinuation by the proportion of patients who withdrew due to an adverse event. So they, for any reason, and then also just adverse event. And then they finally looked at safety, the total number of patients with at least one adverse event. When they had more than one scale in a study, they had an actual predefined hierarchy that they used to determine what, which of those scales had the highest uh, uh, robustness and, and accuracy, if you will. And that's the one they chose, basically. For secondary outcomes, they analyzed uh, uh, objectives and subjective measures of, of, of sleep efficacy. So sleep onset latency, if that data was reported, what wake time after sleep onset, total sleep time, the number of awakenings, and if the study did polysomnography, where they were actually able to, to, to monitor their sleep um, more, more formally, they looked at that data as well. If the studies had a sleep diary, they looked at that. They also specifically looked at, at hangover, people who had sedation, reduced alertness during the day when they took the medication, or withdrawal phenomenon as well. Now, they targeted data after four weeks of treatment, and they note that, again, with these wide number of drugs, and they looked at a, at a wide number of studies, the studies went from two weeks up to 12 weeks pretty commonly. So they kind of targeted kind of in the middle for four weeks. And if there was a study that didn't have that as their primary time point, then they basically tried to look at the data at that time point if they could find it in the study. And then for long-term analysis, they, the longest time point after three months of treatment were used. Now, again, with meta-analyses, I always tell my students that you have to be kind of careful when reading them because they're kind of you know notorious with their statistics to kind of plow through. I thought the statistics were kind of interesting, which you might say is, you know, is, is statistics ever interesting? Is that kind of an oxymoron? But I actually found that the statistics were kind of interesting. And again, I found it very impressive that the study authors were contacted if they were missing an unclear data. And then uh, it, they this was kind of interesting. And for, for a dichotomous outcome, for a yes-no outcome, if the data was missing from the study, they assumed that patients who were dropped out after being randomly assigned had a negative outcome. So that Kind of, an, a kind of an intention to treat type thing, right? So if, if they didn't have the data, they assumed that the patient either dropped out of the study or, or wasn't effective for them. And then for continuous outcome data, they used the method in the original study to account for missing data, which is commonly done in, in studies, especially in psychiatry, where they use pri primarily lapse, last observation carry forward were reported. So I thought that was kind of an interesting way to do that. Um, and then they calculated standard deviation from already published p-values, t-values, or imputed them with a validated method. And then they looked at the standardized mean differences, SMD, which is kind of a, in, in meta-analyses, kind of looking at the effect size. So is it a small, large effect size? If there's a bigger standard mean difference, I mean, there's probably a larger effect size from the intervention, right? Then as far as the meta-analysis themselves, this was, again, a network meta-analysis. So they used a random effects model, which is pretty common um, in, in, the, in, in network meta-analyses. They did assume that there was equal heterogeneity across all comparisons, which, I, I, again, if there was a strike in the 
statistics, I was like, gee, is that a valid assumption? We're looking at 30 different drugs and all, all sorts of different uh, um, uh, patients and stuff like that. So that's something you kind of think of as well. They also then did assess the study by the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool, which almost everybody does now, and the certainty of evidence using the confidence and network meta-analysis framework, which is called the CINEMA framework, which is a standardized way to look at how uh, certain you are that the evidence is true, basically. So that's basically what they did. They looked at primarily adults, as you might imagine, and they did look at covariates as far as severity of symptoms and study sponsorship. Again, another very interesting uh, thing that you don't see done in studies uh, when they did their uh, meta-analysis as a covariate. So pretty complex meta-analysis, but I was, I, again, my hat is off to, to, to the authors because I think they did, they, they left no stone unturned trying to figure out the evidence. And so what did they find? Well, uh, they actually were sifted through about 16,000 records, pretty impressive. They included 170 randomized control trials published between 1977 and 2021. So probably one of the bigger network meta-analyses you're ever going to see published. I thought that was pretty interesting. They compared 36 different pharmacologic treatments. Let me say that again, there was 36 different drugs they looked at. They deemed 154 double-blind RCTs were eligible for the network meta-analysis after the uh, systematic review. In total, they had 12,670 patients. If you bound all these patients up together that were assigned either to placebo and 35,000 patients, again, very large, uh, assigned to one of the following medications. And again, it's pretty impressive the medications they looked at. Now, of course, the big dogs here are going to be the benzodiazepines, which they, they further subdivided into short half-life benzodiazepines like alprazolam, triazolam, and again, I'm an old enough man to remember when halcyon was used like water for insomnia, and then uh, the reports of people, you know, sleepwalking and sleep driving with it, so that, that kind of fell from favor. Intermediate half-life drugs like estolazam and lorazepam and temazepam, which again is still occasionally used IC, and then long half-life drugs like like nitrazepam and fluorazepam. And again, down main, when I first came out of school in, in, in the early 90s, was used still pretty commonly. Um, and it just zonked people for hours and hours. So uh, they looked at benzos as a group and the individual drugs in that group. They, it looks, they looked at, at some of the orexin inhibitors. So daraduxidant, uh, saloxidant, uh, suvoroxidant, uh, lamboroxidant. So all these orexin inhibitors that, that have been used now for, for improving the last like 10 years for insomnia. They looked at diphenhydramine, Doxapin, doxalamins, those are uh, two of those are over the counter. They looked at melatonin. They looked at mirtazapine. They also looked at uh, romelteron, which is the kind of mirtazapine derivative that's FDA approved for insomnia. They looked at quetiapine, which again, I'm not a big fan of using quetiapine as a sleeper, but it's definitely used as a sleeper. Trazodone, uh, trimipramine, and then of course, all the Z drugs. So Zalplon, uh, Zolpidem, Zoplicone and esoplicone uh, were all looked at as well. So again, a wide, wide ranging uh, assessment in this meta-analysis. So, so, so again, pretty impressive. For the acute treatment analysis, uh, they had 86 trials were included for efficacy, 100 trials for acceptability, and 76 trials for tolerability. And that was just for that short-term four-week analysis. What about long-term long analysis? So out of all those studies, 170 randomized control trials, guess how many long-term analyses they were? There were five, <laughs> actually five studies, eight really, eight total. So five studies for efficacy and eight and eight studies for tolerability and acceptability. So again, pointing out the fact that uh, we have these patients on these drugs for years and we have almost no data that long-term use is either efficacious or safe. Uh, the main sample size in, in the individual studies was about 265, mean age was about 50 years, and about 63% of the patients were women. Again, the vast, vast majority of these uh, looked at, at adults 
was 18 to 65, but there was a small percentage of patients uh, who looked at patients over age 65, which I thought was kind of interesting. Median duration of treatment was two to four weeks, and in the long-term study was 25 weeks. So what did they find? Well, they found that, that when they brought everything together, all benzodiazepines as a class, doxalamin, ethylpiclone, lamboxarant, uh, zolpidem and zoplicone were all more efficacious than placebo in the acute treatment, again, the short-acting treatment of insomnia disorder with a standard mean difference ranging from 0.36 to 0.83. So uh, fairly, you know, either moderate to high level of, 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 of a treatment effect with moderate to high level of certainty of, of, of evidence. And when they found the, the, the highest ones, the ones with the highest level of effect, it was actually esoplicone or uh, lamboxarant were actually the ones that, that they found were the most efficacious against placebo. And then the others were kind of down the road. They did not find any data for doxepin, doxalamin, melatonin, uh, sphoxorant, quetiapine, trazodone, zalplon, or zolpiclone that found that they had significant effects over placebo after four weeks of treatment. So I thought that was kind of interesting as well. There were a few head-to-head -head studies. So in terms of head-to-head -head comparisons after four weeks of treatment, short-acting benzodiazepines were more effective than the orixin drugs and zalpilon. And then esoplicone uh, and zolpidem were more effective than zalpilon. Um, and and in fact, again, uh, zoplicone seemed to be the winner here with probably the highest uh, uh, effect size and moderate level of, of certainty of evidence. Um, and zolpidem was kind of right behind it, basically. Intermediate acting benzodiazepines, so drugs like tamazepam, long acting uh, benzodiazepines we really don't use anymore. And interestingly, zoplicone had less discontinuations due to any cause compared to other drugs, particularly the one they looked at was uh, Romelteon. And I thought this was a fascinating result because I would think that if anything, you would find that the melatonin drugs would be the best tolerated, right? The melatonin drugs shouldn't have any hangover. They shouldn't have any uh, dependence problems or issues or dizziness or anything along those lines. Actually, in the study, they found that, that there were actually fewer discontinuations with the other drugs compared to, to Romelteon, which I thought was, 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 was pretty interesting. And even when they looked at specific adverse effects, particularly esoplicone and zolpidem were associated with an increased incidence of dizziness and nausea, but Romelteon caused more fatigue. And again, that would be the exact opposite, I would think. You would think that the benzos would cause more fatigue and dizziness and tiredness, and you'd, and you'd think the, the melatonergic drugs would, cause, would, again, just be very well tolerated overall. Um, they did do a subgroup analysis to study the effect of, of severity at baseline, uh, drugs uh, study sponsorship of the studies. And the findings actually didn't uh, differ from the primary analysis in those. I thought that was kind of interesting. They did do risk of bias and found that some of the smaller studies did have a higher risk of bias. But on the whole, since these were all randomized control trial studies, there was actually a fair uh, level of certainty of evidence. So that, 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 that's good. Some of the studies, again, because they were small, had very low certainty of evidence using the cinema score. But again, some, some, some had, had, fairly, had moderate to fairly high uh, certainty of evidence as well. The majority of the comparisons of the old drugs, so, you know, benzodiazepines and, and doxmin, stuff like that were rated as more moderate to low, and comparisons uh, involving melatonin, in fact, were very low. So when they all broke it down, uh, lamboxarant, which is an erixin drug, and esoplicone, which is a derivative of one of the, the Z drugs for, for, for insomnia, actually had the overall best profile in terms of efficacy, acceptability, and tolerability. So, and again, I think that that surprised me when I read it, and I suspect it would surprise most people read it, especially the, the, the tolerability. I mean, I think most people feel like, again, the melatonergic drugs seem to be 
pretty harmless, you know, and that's actually not what they found when they when they looked at these randomized control trial data. So that's I think if, if there's a, a take home message about this about this uh, meta analysis, I think that's it is that in fact they that maybe melatonergic drugs aren't as 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 uh, harmless as we may think they are, right? So uh, then they they do a, a long discussion, and I think it's definitely worth reading if you get a chance to do that. They they point out that uh, the Z drugs again, you know, Zoplicone, Zoplicone, uh, Zalpion, and Zolpidem um, are probably most commonly used drugs in the United States now uh, for for insomnia. They produce their hypnotic effects via benzodiazepine re receptors, uh, thereby enhancing uh, the effect of GABA. Um, again, they point out that azoplicone seems to have the best profile of all the drugs in, in terms of efficacy and acceptability, but they also point out, and I think I'm, I'm glad they did this, that because it is a Z drug, it still has the potential for, for dependence, and I think we shouldn't just be handing out this drug uh, um, uh, like water. They point out that azoplicone may be safer because uh, it is, is the active isomer of zoplicone that binds preferentially to a particular uh, GABA receptor subtype. But again, that's that's kind of conjecture, I think, at that point. They talk about trazodone, and and uh, they note that their study did not find a whole bunch of efficacy for trazodone. I will tell you that my my personal experience as a clinician has been I've used a lot of it over the years, and I've actually had some pretty good successes with it. But they note that all the anticholinergic drugs like trazodone, like diphenhydramine, didn't have a lot of data to support them with the possible exception of doxamine seem to have a little more data to support it. It seemed to be a little more effective than, than the other anticholinergic drugs. So again, I thought that was kind of interesting as well. They note that, again, none of these drugs have long-term data to support them. Then they talked about the melatonin drugs. And, and again, I think it kind of surprised them as, as well as me that melatonin drugs didn't really surprise me. They weren't all that efficacious, but definitely did surprise me that, that they weren't as well tolerated, in, you know, especially compared to some of these other medications. And then they talked about the erixin receptors, um, uh, which are the brand is brand newest drugs out there uh, for, for, for the treatment of insomnia. They're all horrendously expensive, of course. There's data that seems that they that they seem to improve sleep in the short term, but no long-term data in their analysis. And that of them, this Lamborxorant seemed to be the most efficacious and the most safe. So how do you kind of take this to the bank? Well, you know, again, I'm not going to, you know, if someone asked me about melatonin, I think I think you're obliged to say, well, we don't have a lot of data with melatonin as far as safety and efficacy, but it certainly, you know, it, 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 up until this point, it seems to be harmless. I would, I would not just assume just because it's over the counter and as a, as a, as a supplement that it's not going to have side effects. Um, and and I, I think I'm going to, you know, kind of redouble my efforts when, when people ask me about melatonin to kind of point out that in this study, there actually, there were side effects and people did have them. And, and in fact, um, in some cases, benzodiazepines were actually better tolerated with less hangover and, and less uh, dizziness and, and less fatigue, which again, kind of surprised surprised me. Um, I, I think that when you're picking a Z drug, of course, a lot of it's going to have to do with cost, but most of these drugs are generic now. I guess if I have to pick something that's going to be for the medium or long term using this meta-analysis, you could say that esopiclone is probably the one that, to, to pick as far as efficacy and safety. Um, again, I think the question is going to be, you know, insurance coverage and things along those lines. Um, I, you know, again, I, I, I wouldn't start handing that stuff out like candy um, because, I, again, I think there's, there's some real concerns as far as dependence and withdrawal that you're going to have to worry about with those. And then, you know, a lot of the things like Seroquel, you know, Quetiapine and, and uh, Doxapin and these other medications that, that we use, um, um, or Tazapine, uh, really have very little or no data to support that they are better in randomized control trials compared to placebo and helping people to sleep. And I've, I've kind of backed off personally from using a lot uh, or recommending uh, the use of Mertazapine since that paper came out last year that suggested an increase in mortality in the elderly. I've been kind of backing off 
from that. And I've never been a big fan of using Seroquel solely as a sleeper. Now, if I have somebody who, who is agitated at night, especially someone with Alzheimer's might have a sundowning that might have a role there. But, 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 but I, you know, again, this just confirms what I've always kind of thought is, you know, yeah, maybe using antipsychotics as sleepers isn't the greatest idea. Am I going to stop using trazodone or recommending trazodone? I don't know. Um, like I said, my, my personal experience has been fairly good with it, but again, uh, perhaps, you know, again, that's just bias on my part and I have to have to kind of rethink that as well. So again, an excellent meta-analysis. Um, if you get a chance to read it, I would highly suggest it, but, but, uh, definitely changed, uh, some of the, some of the longstanding thoughts I had had about the drugs that we, that we recommend for insomnia and, uh, you know, re, re, reaffirmed to me that, that really, if we can not use medications, that's the way to go, but there is some evidence that may help us select the, uh, certain drug for certain patients as well. So that's it for this week of Game Changers. Thanks again for listening to us. We will see you next week, but until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes. And check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.